What's going on? It's Joey Thurman, and welcome to Season 3 of the Fad or Future Podcast. Yeah, I made it three seasons. What's different about this season? Well, yes, I'm still bringing you the world's top experts in fitness, nutrition, mental health, and more. But I'm also talking about my own personal struggles. I get deeper this season because we can all use a little bit of relatability. So I hope you stick with me, you enjoy this season, and thank you for being here. And as always, you get to decide, is it a fad or is it a future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties, F-A-D-D-Y. Hashtag don't be a fatty. Uh, what's going on? It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the season three of the Fat or Future podcast. Dr. Rick Ritchie, you know, I'm going to read your bio ahead of time because um, he said that when he writes this thing, he's not quite sure who that man is. But then when somebody reads it, he sounds very important. So you look good on paper, my friend, and you look good in person, too. Oh, OK. All right. Thanks, Joey. <laughs> making me feel good about myself. That was, that was nice, right? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. How you doing? It's good to see you. No, it's, it's, it's good to see you. Um, anybody listening, uh, I've done Rick and I've known Rick for a few years now, um, you know, in person a couple of years ago and then, you know, You've been around as an educator, um, author, all sorts of stuff. NASM, if anybody is knows NASM, um, North American Sports Medicine, they his face is over everything, and even certifications. I've got to, I've got to watch you and listen to you, and all this sort of shit. It drives me crazy how smart <laughs> you are. So, what's anybody up, that that's part of NASM? who's probably seen my face so much that they're happy that this, it, they're not going to watch the visual of this. They might listen to it, but they see my face and they're like, not that guy again. Uh, yeah. And anybody, again. It's, it's, it's NASM, not NASM. Cause they get, they, they don't like when you say NASM apparently. I, I, I don't care, but you know, the people upstairs, they have their, their things, they have their hiccups and that's one of them for some reason. They, they have their things. Okay. Well, you're in New York City as a career, right? And, um, you know, we're in March, April-ish, I guess, depending on when this comes out. So let's, let's call it April right now. And anybody listening, yes, yeah, sometimes podcasts didn't get recorded that same day. Right. <laughs> we're, we're pulling the curtain back. <laughs> How dare you? It's been a lie. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm not listening to this live. They didn't record it yesterday. Uh, no, it is. Um, man, so... First of all, how has the pandemic been for you? Because you you own multiple businesses, you're an, you're an educator, and um, it can't be easy for you know a personal trainer. But you own personal training spots, um, yeah. as well as you had other businesses, and you know you're trying to just trying to keep your head above water, and you got a family. I mean, how has this been for you? It's been tough, no doubt, no doubt. It's been tough for everybody, and so I'm I'm not a unique story with that, and and I don't want to paint a picture that I am. But the you know losing businesses, so there are a couple of businesses that just you know couldn't couldn't survive the pandemic, and some other businesses. So the gyms, independent training spots, which are like co-working space for personal trainers. It was a lot of back and forth with landlords and, you know, some pleading and people holding out. And, you know, I, I think landlords have their own little forums and groups where they're like, let's stay together and stay strong. And then as more and more tenants just start falling off, then those landlords are like, I know we talked about staying strong, guys, but I'm gonna have to cut some deals. So I finally got some deals cut and I was able to, to survive until we were able to open back up. But you know, it's like becoming a personal trainer, just because you become a personal trainer doesn't mean that people start training with you. You have to do the work. And so just because we opened our doors back up didn't mean that people were ready to start coming back. And that's that's been a significant challenge. And also the significant challenge of the great New York City exodus that seems to be taking place. So um all of the and and the businesses aren't open yet, right? The banks don't have to come back and the whatever. So any of the any of the places that are open um, that aren't requiring their people to come back, that's you know that affects our business. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see what happens. And you know, I haven't stepped foot in a gym since it was June, I believe, of 2020. You know, I 
built a gym in my in-laws garage and now I'm sitting in a two-bedroom apartment that I just made a gym to record things and <laughs> it's really strange um yeah. I think people think it's strange when they walk by the, the little balcony here and they just see nothing but like lights and gym equipment and not a single chair this is the one chair that I have right now <laughs> <laughs> like is it one of those like ball chairs the stability ball chairs is it some type of fitness chair no, too no, no fitness bullshit here man it's all a, right it's a wooden cheap chair I think that we got back when we had our first house I think we paid like 500 bucks for the table set chair everything so it's not comfortable at all. <laughs> no, not everything is weird. fitness. If there's an elevator pre-pandemic, I'm taking the elevator. I work out enough. So there, I'm pulling the curtain back again, man. This is just, we're going to call it pulling the curtain back. But <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah. You know, you, you got to do um, what you got to do. But, you know, when um, I first really met you in person, it was, it was at your old spot, Recover, which I think that that place was ahead of its time. And we talked a little yeah. bit in the pre-interview how, you know, like to go and get one of these services, you have to go to one place and then drive across town and go back and forth. And um, tell me a little bit about the, the concept there. That was really unique. And I, I mean, it's, it's sad yeah. to hear that it's gone. And, you know, there's a plethora of other businesses that have, you know, um, had to pull out essentially. But um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Recover, we, we opened several years ago, and it was, it was really the first recovery studio that had multiple things in it. And uh, as we started putting it together, we wanted to get some investors because it was a really great idea. I mean, it was a really great idea. And so we talked to people, and they would say, man, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know what recovery is. I don't know what any of these things, but I like you guys, so tell me, is there a proof of concept out there? And we were like, no, no. I mean, there's, there's nothing we could point to and say, this is proof of concept. We could point to individual things like here's an infrared sauna place and here's a cryo place. And, you know, but there was not a place that had all the stuff together. And um, so most of the real investors were like, nah, and uh, so it was all friends and family who basically said the same thing that the investors did, which is, I don't know what you're talking about, but I trust you. Yeah. I know you, I believe in you. And I think that if you think it's a good idea, then we're willing to put our money in it. And so it, it was a good idea. It was, it was just, it couldn't survive the pandemic. When we were allowed to finally open back up, nobody wanted to come back in. Right. And that, that was the tough part being allowed to open uh, as a business, but the people weren't ready right. to be back. Like nobody wanted to put on Normatec sleeves that somebody else had worn. And we, it didn't matter how many times we cleaned them, how sanitary we were, even sitting in the chairs, pushing an elevator button to get like nobody was ready to do it. And so we just had to, we had to, to fold on it. So what's your advice to people who get to that point, right? Like you, you, you put a ton of time and energy and love into something. And when do you know it's time just to like step away? Yeah. And we had a, a similar issue, my wife and I, cause she, before we had met, she owned properties and um, the 2018, uh, 20, 2008 kind of real estate bubble burst took place. And I, I had a lot of guilt with that. Like I kept paying mortgages on places that we had no renters in that, you know, they're falling apart. And we met with an attorney to discuss finances. And I, I just remember it and you've heard the phrase, but it's not until it really makes uh, like application directly to you that it matters. But he said, you're just throwing good money after bad. He goes, give them the keys back. And we did, we gave the bank the keys back and we were like, hey, it's a solid run. We lost a lot of money on it. And of course, if we could have maintained that for another year or two, then we would have made that money back, but we just couldn't. And that's the thing, like, are you ready to do that? We'd already put a lot of money into it. Our investors were great. No, nobody, our investors in Recovered, they didn't feel nearly as bad as we did right. for them. Like I lost your money and they were like, nah, nah, it's, 
if I didn't if I didn't have the money to invest, then I wouldn't have invested. We know the we know that there's a um, there's a risk right. putting in money, and they were like, and it's not that you ran a bad business and put the business into the ground. It was unforeseeable and uncontrollable factors, and all of the investors have been so kind. And it doesn't take away the guilt. Like there's still guilt associated with it. And that sucks. And it's something that, you know, logically I know that it's okay, but still emotionally there's a responsibility and an affect that I have that I have to talk myself down with the logic. Yeah. And and part of that's going to be a little bit of the ego, right? Like you, like you, you got this idea and you're like, you should be able to thrive through even a global fucking pandemic that no, nobody, nobody right. could have foreseen. You know, I, I think, you know, weddings, divorce lawyers, um, you know, funeral homes and personal trainers. I think that we, we thought we were all good. Right. Yeah. And shit, man, it, it just, it, it hit the fan. And I know when I was in there, like you, you had some really unique pieces of equipment that people really hadn't seen or heard about even me being in, in the fitness industry. And um, what do you think for, as far as a, you know, recovery aspect, where do you think the future of fitness is headed now? Do you think people are going to end up going back and getting, going to massage therapists and chiropractors? Or do you think that there's, there's something now that people are going to um, turn to doing at home? Yeah. I, I, I have a lot of opinions about this, Joey. So let me know if you want I like to opinions. Stop. <laughs> well, you know, hey, um, a podcast is about talking and opinions. So it's okay. that you, I didn't know if you knew that. I do. I mean, that's why they gave me my own. So right. <laughs> they were like, Rick will talk about it. Uh, and then after an hour, the producers are like, wrap it up, bro. So um, here's, here's what I think. Um, I think this digital revolution is, I don't know if it's overdue, but we were ready to, to make this change. And so when we go back to being able to open up and a post-pandemic normal. Um, the the post-pandemic normal is still going to have a lot of digital applications. Yeah. Right? There's still going to be um, the kudos, right, and the pelotons and the all of these. Rumble is is now in your you know like Fight Club. All of these things that you can do from home, they're still going to be there, and I think that's great because the fitness industry. Oftentimes you see people opening up new things and they're all fighting over the same marketplace, right? right? Like if let's say 80% of the population doesn't have a gym membership and that's actually pretty close to the, the, the normal. So you got 20% that are and a new place opens and they're fighting over the same 20%. Yeah. So when, when do you access the huge market that's available to you? And I think digital allows you to do that. Also, one of the issues is that digital, what that's doing is um, it's a lot of the same people that are going to the gym that are purchasing the at-home digital. And that's just kind of the, the, a market that's being hit, but people who feel uncomfortable going to the gym may not necessarily have to do that. Now, on the other hand, I think that um, even though the, real estate may not quite show it yet. Real estate's still doing pretty good. And I don't think that's going to last for very long. And I'm like, you mentioned, I'm in New York city. There are a lot of closed doors and uh, shops are boarded up and retail was already on the downswing in general anyway. And so I believe that when these doors start opening up, it's going to be a lot of what they call lifestyle um, um, retail, a lot of lifestyle environments that are opening up. And that, I mean, that's gyms and rock climbing walls and massage and, you know, people still want to go out. So there, there are opportunities that maybe you can do some things at home, but you're still going to go to physical therapy. You're still going to go to chiropractor, but people want to get out of their house and have experiences. And I believe a lot of those former retail places are going to be experiential places that people can go to and be away from home, be away from work and do something cool. And I think we're going to see a lot of that popping up. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense. I saw um, there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago and, you know, these are just- I love when you quote studies. You know- You mentioned this in your podcast and I'm like, ah. Um, I don't even say study, more a poll. Let's go with polls. People, people right. studying polls is different. So where they interviewed people and they said that 60% of them that canceled their gym membership aren't going to go back to a gym. But right now we are in the still kind of in the thick of things. So I think it's fresh. Still scary. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's still scary. It's still fresh in our minds. I think, you know, maybe six months from now or a year from now, or, you know, like when people, the, the positivity rate goes down. I think that people are going to start flowing into the gyms more. It will Great. probably be less than there was. I don't think like, you know, the golds and that are going to have thousands of locations anymore because you're right. There's going to be that digital aspect of it, but there is certain that hands-on, like, especially you as being a massage therapist and corrective exercise specialist, and you've got a bunch of initials behind your name. I don't have enough time to keep listing all those, but there's something to be said about that, that hands-on and that, you know, experience, like you can't, I, I don't care how good you are. You can't fix somebody via zoom or a FaceTime right. If you've literally got to manually manipulate something or like feel the tissue working or not working, or like literally see what's happening because you can't see everything. So where, where is that going to go as far as, you know, like when you, you mentioned physical therapy or like, is there anything do you think that people are going to be able to just like, okay, I've got this back pain. I'm just going to try to fix it on zoom and, you know, or am I going to go and see somebody? I think they're trying to, right? Like that, that people are trying to do that. And some physical therapists are trying to make that happen. And, and, and it probably helps a, a little bit, but you know, it's not talk therapy, talk therapy. We can get on here. I see you, you see me, we can talk it out. It's, it's almost the same. Right. So physical therapy, there's no way. And, and I, I remember working early on with Eric Beard at NASM and he was a massage therapist as well. And we're talking about foam rolling and things like that and how important it is and coaching people. And it was all great. And then he goes, but nothing beats a good set of hands. And I was like, that's so true though. That's so true to have somebody actually do things with you and work with you. Um, I also think physical therapy is shifting a little bit more. So it's not so much all the time and only like these are what I do to release and this and that. Like it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of exercise. Right. And so really getting into the correctives with exercise versus just doing correctives with hands-on tissue release and things like that. I, I, I think we're going to see a lot more shifting towards the strengthening of weaknesses, not just the loosening up of tightness. And, and, and to be honest, it's, it's a cohesive picture. And too many times people will take a little piece of it and they go, oh, I, the foam rolling or the body work. And that's the answer or the stretching is the answer. And uh, it's like a, it's like a painting, you know, uh, pointism, like Surat, the, you know, you see little dots and everybody goes, oh, you see that dot right there. Oh, there's another dot right there. That's my favorite dot. And at some point you got to pull back and be like, oh, that's a picture. <laughs> that's a, that's a really big picture that shows a lot more. Yeah, there you go with the Lots mug. My coffee mug, okay. It shows a lot more than the dots. And sometimes people just focus on the dots and they don't step back and look at the picture. And I'm, uh, I, I'd like to see more of that in general. And that's, that's kind of a different story than uh, like a, a pandemic to do. Yeah. But there are parts of the picture. There are things that you can do when you step back. But certainly when you go meet somebody, a professional and you're face-to-face with them, you get a you get a better assessment and you get better treatment with that, um, and and that'll be big. I also think that the when the real estate drops down, you're going to get a lot of people that are like, "Man, that's really cheap. Let's open a gym." Yeah. And so you're going to see an influx of gyms, followed by a year or two later, a mass exodus of gyms that couldn't cut it. And there's there are a lot of things that again that I have opinions about and. Uh, I, I think that they're possible. I don't know if they're going to happen, but I do think that they're going to be a large spike in people who are like, I want to give this a go. People want to own a gym. And, uh, and so many times people idealize what that looks like. Right. Like I have the idea that owning a gym, that's the dream. And 
I gotta be honest, early on, I owned a gym that I didn't have the same template that I have now. And it was awful. <laughs> it, was, it was, I couldn't afford anybody to work there. I was there 86 hours a week. Um, and that was like the time that we were open to the time we're closed. So it didn't include me cleaning up before or after or anything like that. And then I closed on Sunday. So the 86 hours were six days of my life. And then Sunday, I could see my children. Right. I see my wife. So uh, sometimes I slept at the gym because the 30 minutes to get home and the 30 minutes to get back in the morning, that's an hour that, and, and they're going to be asleep. Right. So I just sleep on a, like a treatment table at the gym. So it's, it's not, it's not always a pretty picture. And that's the kind of hustle, right? Like when I opened independent training spot, when I opened recover, that's the kind of hustle that we were willing to put in that I'm not sure that I would ever do again. Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. I have a client who, um, I guess former client now, that um, Harvard MBA, very smart guy. His company went public, like very smart dude. And he said, it was funny when I first started training him, um, I was at a you know similar spot, like an independent training spot in Chicago. And um, he's like, oh, this is a unique concept. He's like, you know, the one thing that my business uh, professor told us to never open was a gym he literally said he's so like that's the, that's the only thing he's like because there's no barriers to entry there like he's like anybody can throw some equipment in there and he's like you so they did this whole thing but it was really interesting because this is the first time that he saw a concept of you know a, a place where people trainers go and rent space and charge their clients so and that's kind of where he, his wheels started turning a little bit and I said, well, you, you know, let me know if you ever decide to do something like this. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And then we started getting close to doing something, but then having a recover aspect and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, yeah, we were getting ready to take, you know, uh, our first seven figure investment from the lead investor in, you know, last March. And then, you know, pandemic hit. And we're like, whoa, let's pump the brakes here a little bit. <laughs> well, you dodged a bullet that I didn't quite dodge because I signed a lease. This is, so check this one out. I signed a lease the day before the shutdown Jesus. on purpose, <laughs> on purpose. We handed over six figures basically to a landlord knowing that we were going to shut down the following day for two weeks. And so we were like, oh, that's going to give our designer and our contractor two weeks where they can talk about things. So that way, when we open again in two weeks, we hit the ground running and then we could probably open early while we still have free rent and we could start building the business before we, it was such a great idea conceptually. Uh, what an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot is right. Who would have known dude? that? Right. I mean, this is a year later. So you and I had a, a, an Instagram live that we talked about some of this stuff almost a year ago. Yeah. And I mean, to think that this was still happening. In fact, even when we opened up, I would go and I'd block out places, you know, cause we can only have a third capacity. So I'd block out the schedule. And then all of a sudden there, that would be gone because three months later, um, I, I didn't extend the blocking out of the schedule cause I thought it'd be normal again. Right. And so I, I extended another quarter and it's still not normal. And speaking of it's, uh, getting towards the end of March, which means April, none of those things are going to be blocked out again. And I'm, you know, I'm like, do I just do it for another quarter or do I do it for a year? Because every time I get back on there to block out those dates, it just makes me feel nauseous. Oh, that's... It makes me feel nauseous, but losing, losing that money and we litigated to get it back. Yeah. That's a thing. Like we litigated to get it back. And we even appealed after the judge was like, what? No, you don't get your security deposit back. And we were like, what? Nothing, nothing like a, a few bucks. Like, can we get something back? And so we appealed it. And then the next judge goes, no, no, you get nothing back. So um, you talk about some people, some people really bid it and some people hit gold and that landlord got a hundred grand just to hold them over until they could find somebody else, which they still won't find for a while. They still don't have anybody in there, but, and it's been a year since that's happened, but you know, a lot of landlords who had open space didn't have a hundred thousand dollar cushion 
on a spot until they could get somebody in there. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, things, you know, start opening up the like pandemic clauses that people are going to want to put into leases and everything else. Oh, and I won't sign another lease without a force majeure, an act of God, a pandemic, like a specific pandemic clause. Uh, I also am going to do my best to not sign a lease where I pay the landlord's attorneys because that was another several tens of thousands of dollars that we have to pay because they're fighting to not give the money back. And then when we lose, then they go, oh, great. Based on the lease, you now owe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to our attorneys for fighting you. Right. I'm like, oh, That's here we sad. go again. Okay. Uh, let's talk about actual um, exercise here. So <laughs> what? Oh, is that, is that where we are? <laughs> So obviously, uh, and I want to get into um, your new certification coming up and I, yeah. I do, I'm definitely going to talk about, I didn't realize that you had type two diabetes. So we're, that's a little prelude if you're listening. Easy right now. story. Um, what do you feel like the, the main um, issues people are having pop up now with being at home and sitting down all day long? Is there anything that you feel like they could alleviate that? I know it's a completely broad question, um, but like your, your top five. Uh, I'm going to tell you the my top one for sure. And it goes right along with the certification you were talking about that I'm uh, almost completed and will be launching pretty soon. It's a type 2 diabetes exercise specialist course. And one of those kind of comorbidities, complications, things like that is a sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we look at smoking. We know that that's not good for us and uh, excessive drinking. We know that obesity has a lot to do with um, uh, risk factors and sedentary lifestyle. And the sedentary lifestyle, smoking and drinking are kind of the three factors that you look at that are highly dangerous that lead to multiple other issues. And when you hear the phrase sitting is the new smoking, so you've probably heard that before. And that's not true because I'm sitting right now and that's not like smoking. But if I sit here all day long, it almost is. So it's not sitting is the new smoking. It's sedentary behaviors is the new smoking. Right. It's a sedentary behavior that doesn't. In fact, sedentary behavior is so bad, Joey, that uh, you could work out for an hour at a, at a, a, a good regularly kind of intense or vigorous pop and then go sit all day and it not benefits you any really wow. so the sedentary lifestyle is a big issue and i see it this is the worst part i see it in my kids right because they're going to school online yeah. they they're doing their virtual school and they sit all day and then they uh they get on video games and they, we have to make them, you know, my, my parents are like, you got to go outside and get outside and play, just go outside. And, but that was cool. Cause I lived in Alabama and there was a backyard and we could go outside and play like New York city. Right. That's not the same. You don't just send your kids outside to go play. So uh, that's been, that's been a challenge. The sedentary behaviors, the sedentary lifestyle, this constant, constant, non-stop sitting so what's your, what's your suggestion damaging. for that like get up because there's you even have lack of blood flow where they've linked to a few hours of sitting down to your brain like you, you they've literally look, looked at brain activity and sitting down for a few hours and like you need to stand up because your brain is like your your your, your cognition is going down and anybody <clears> who sat for four hours like obviously like boredom and watching the zoom for four hours and like a conference call is boring as yeah. hell but like I mean, what, what do you suggest for people that, that are doing that? And, and, for, and I do want you to get into um, difference between type one and type two diabetes. Cause a lot of times people get that. Um, and then also how you got diagnosed as well. So I know Ooh, I, just, yeah. I just, I just threw three questions at you and people looking at you and like, wait a minute, you're a trainer, you're a fitness expert. How in the hell do you have diabetes? Aren't you supposed to be mm -hmm. 400 pounds and sitting there, you know, eating pizza and ice cream off of your belly while you're, you know, watching Netflix and playing a video game all simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a tough one for people, right? Because for people who have type two diabetes also, when, when you get diagnosed with it and you have the world 
in your mind anyway, at least looking at you the same way you just described. Right. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't have type two diabetes because then everybody else is going to think all of those bad things about me. Um, and you know, you don't have discipline and you don't have control and you don't have this. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of guilt, trust me, for somebody that was diagnosed with type two diabetes. There's a lot of, a lot of guilt with that. Let me, let me go back real quick to those sedentary behaviors yeah. and how to unpack that. One is there's a wonderful study that showed just getting up every 30 minutes and walking for three minutes helped to increase insulin sensitivity. It helped to increase blood flow. It helped to decrease kind of some of the bad aspects of it. So just getting up and they had a treadmill next to him. They had him walk. Um, there was another one, another study was so good. They had him get up and just do like butt clenches. Like they'd stand up and just like actively squeeze oh, their little, glutes little or muscular radiation there. That's it. So all they did yeah. was have them do these kind of isometric holds. And that seemed to even be relatively effective at mitigating at least some of the, the effects of it. So the, the point of it is, is a, it's not even necessarily the amount of calories that you burn in exercise don't come anywhere close to the amount of calories that you burn in the day anyway. Right. And so what, we're really looking at is we're not saying don't exercise exercise is highly indicated highly valuable the benefits of exercise are incredible but not as incredible as getting up and moving regularly right. so just moving and if you if you don't have to sit stand and that's these studies about sedentary lifestyles are what prompted the walking desks in office and standing desks in offices because it's such powerful content that's coming out of the research about the adverse effects of sedentary behaviors. And employers employ sedentary behaviors. They put those behaviors out there and on people. And so now you see some of the employers trying to unpack that. Um, all right, so type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2015, I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, that's weird. And I was like, what's weird? And there's like, oh, your A1Cs are just higher than what I would expect. And I was like, good, bad. They were like, I mean, it's not good or bad. It's just higher. I would just be aware of it. Okay. I went back the next year and the A1Cs were a full point higher. And they were like, Ooh, that's, that's pre-diabetes. That's, and I was like, what does that mean? And they were like, you got to change your lifestyle. And I was like, what? And she was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like you exercise regularly, you eat pretty well. And I was like, I eat better than most. Like I'm not a saint with my food. And so I decided at that point, no more international delight in my coffee. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, that's, that's really not that much sugar, but you know, black coffee became a thing that I focused on. I went back a year later another full point higher. And she was like, that's, that's like, you're right there, like diabetic numbers. And I was like, no, no, I am not. I refuse you and your input. I don't even know if you're a real doctor. I was so mad. I was so mad. No, no. And so did, did you get your MD online? When yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to out exercise and out diet this. Right. So I went and I, amped up my exercise routine more. And I started uh, just yeah, like cutting out things like just that. I just won't eat. I just refuse food and that must fix things. And, um, and then I got the, I got the flu in 2018 in February. And after the flu, my eyes got really blurry and I started drinking water, Joey, like water, which has always been kind of like, and eh, drink water because I'm supposed to, because I'm a grown up, like I'm an adult, so I'll drink it, but I'm not drinking water because I want it. I was drinking that, like that was straight up fairy dust. I was like, give me water. I need the water. Give it to, I wake up four times, five times a night to go pee. And then right before I go to bed, I chug more water knowing that I'm have to get up and go pee again. But I was so thirsty. I was so thirsty. And my eyesight's getting blurry. And then 
I start losing a lot of weight post this illness, right? And I'm thinking, oh, my eyesight's blurry because I'm sitting in a dark room looking at my phone all day because I'm sick and there's light glowing. That's got to be something that's not good for me. So my eyesight's probably blurry from doing that. But I lost about 30 pounds. And that's, that's a lot of weight, especially because at the time, my walking around weight was always like 160 or 165. So I dropped down to 130 pounds. No, I'm not tall, but that was, that was not a healthy weight. And I remember seeing a picture of me at like a big party that we had at, at recover. And my shirt just kind of like draped over me. And I was like, that's weird. And so I looked it up. And I said, blurry eyesight, peeing a lot. I'm incredibly thirsty, but I'm losing weight. That must be from the exercise. And then I looked it up and it said extreme weight gain or weight loss. And I was like, what? So I went back to the doctor. My fasting blood sugar was 350. Uh, And if anybody uh, is familiar with blood sugar, that's really high. And usually fasting blood sugar for a non-diabetic, it should be below 100. And um, for a diabetic, it should be under 150. And it was at 350 and my A1Cs were at almost 13. Wow. And so that was, that was a real moment. It was, it was the Ides of March. I remember thinking it was March 15th, 2018, the Ides of March, beware the Ides of March. And I call my wife and my wife's getting the kids ready for school. And I'd gone in early and I tell her about it. She was like, Oh, I'm so sorry, but I have the kids to do this. And I got to, yeah, anyway, that's, that stinks. Uh, we'll talk about it later. And I remember getting off the phone and I was like, I am so hurt right now that she doesn't know how hurt I am. Sure. And that was a that was a good like conversation moment for our us and our relationship where I didn't go into and I was like I can't believe you treated right like I was like I know you don't know how painful that was that you weren't there in that conversation with me but that was really painful because I needed somebody to feel bad for me <laughs> I don't know I needed somebody to know how bad I felt and yeah, the kids have to get to school. And I, I understood where she was coming from, but it, it just, it didn't sink in until we had that talk that she didn't understand where I was coming from. And uh, anyway, it, it was strong. It was a, a strong relationship builder for us to have, have that kind of conversation. And so anyway, uh, she told me at that point, she goes, well, if I know you, and anything about you, you're going to take this and do something positive with it. And so that's what this course is, I think. I think this course that I'm working on is a, a part of that positive swing where I had a conversation with uh, the MedFit Network, the MedFit Classroom, MedFit Education, uh, and uh, Lisa Doherty that, that runs all of those things. We had a conversation and she said, well, you put together a program, we'll, we'll launch it on our platform. And so I have a course. I'm not sure how long it's going to be because I haven't started recording it, um, but it'll certainly be uh, about a 10 or 15 hour course on the pathophysiology of diabetes, understanding diabetes, the difference between type one and type two, which we'll get to, and um, exercise, behavior change, uh, risk factors, contraindications, and uh, nutrition and all of those things add up. And, you know, talking about the guilt from earlier, I mean, I was, I was, I, there was so much blame that I was putting up. What, what's wrong with me? What could I have done better? What should I have done? Because I used to teach at workshops when I would talk about type two diabetes, I would say this should not exist in society. Type two diabetes should not exist. It is a behavioral lifestyle issue. And don't get me wrong, for the most part it is, right? Like there are behaviors that we do and something clicks in our body that, you know, there's a genetic code 
there's this kind of epigenetic situation where it's like, you're fine until you hit this point. And once you hit this point, boom, then you're going to, then this kind of diabetes comes in. Same thing with heart disease here. There are sometimes many people, you, you won't get it unless behaviors follow. And there are some people that, that are obese, that have really poor diets and obesity is really strongly attached to diabetes. In fact, it's the number one risk factor for diabetes, but not everybody that's obese has diabetes. And I would be an example that also not everybody that gets type two diabetes is obese. Right. It's like you, you can get lung cancer and not be a smoker. Like men, there's a higher incidence now of, you know, um, breast, breast cancer, cancer. Or pectoral cancer. Now, like mm -hmm. you know, environmental factors, all sorts of shit. Like we're not getting right. that, but like that, that's a, a huge common misconception because even me as a fitness professional, like I know that type two diabetes can happen to people. But even, I didn't know this until you sent me your bio. I just thought you were doing a diabetes course. And I'm like, gosh, how is he getting, how the fuck is this? He have diabetes. Like this is, yeah. it, it's crazy. So um, yeah, let's just little cliff notes on type one versus type two. Yeah, so type one diabetes, which is what they thought I had initially because they didn't see me as a type two diabetic. Right. So type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And it's, it's very important to understand that. So a lot of people are diagnosed with this autoimmune disease early on. And so they would think that this was um, a, a youth disease. And I, I think you're right when you mentioned the environmental factors, so a lot of things that can add up to it, but uh, autoimmune disease, when your body sees things your, your immune system in your body sees other things in your body that are good things. They see them as bad things. And so inside your pancreas, there are what are called beta cells that produce your insulin. And so for some reason, type one diabetics, their immune system sees the beta cells and goes, what is that? Uh -uh, out and they start attacking the beta cells and they kill off the beta cells, which means they cannot produce insulin. If you cannot produce insulin, insulin is the way that, that sugars or glucose in your bloodstream is pulled out of your bloodstream. And glucose in your bloodstream is bad for you. Right. A lot of, and, and there you're supposed to have some, but like everything it's, it's dose dependent, like any poison it's dose dependent. So you have a dose dependent amount of sugar that can be in your bloodstream before it starts to damage. And then over time, increased amount of glucose in the bloodstream starts breaking down the endothelium. Well, so type one diabetics, that's going to be uh, an autoimmune disease. Type two diabetes is a little bit different. So this is what they used to call adult onset diabetes because they would see type one diabetics as that would happen in the youth and type two would happen later on in life. Right. Well, we're seeing more and more incidents of type two taking place in youth, even though I think something like 98% still happen at the age of 18 and above. Um, but we also see type one diabetes taking place a lot more in people who are not young. So again, autoimmune diseases don't say, hey, how old are you? Nah, we'll pass. So there's always a chance that, that you could have it. it, just depends on the immune system. Um, type two diabetes is uh, what's probably best referred to as insulin resistant diabetes. So your body's producing the insulin, the, the islets of Langerhans are producing it, which where the beta cells are and the beta cells are producing the insulin. It goes into your body and it takes the sugars out of your bloodstream and it starts to store it inside your muscles. Um, the something happens where these, what are called glut four transporters, they, they just don't, there's a, the transport's not happening. So you have this insulin mediated uptake of glucose in your system and your body's not responding to it. It's becoming resistant to it. And so if you give insulin to type two diabetics, then that's enough insulin to overcome the resistance. Right. A lot of times it's not insulin. You don't need for, people can take oral medications that are not insulin because their pancreas is still producing the insulin until it doesn't. And what happens is that through the pre-diabetic phase and into the diabetic phase, um, 
your your blood glucose increases, so your pancreas will produce more insulin. And then that's good until resistance happens again. And then your pancreas produces more insulin to overcome it. And then the resistance happens again. And so this is why it's called a progressive disease. And so eventually what happens is that those beta cells just wear out. They can't keep producing more and more insulin. And they're like, we just can't do this anymore. And they start dying. And then a type two diabetic may eventually have a very similar issue to a type one diabetic where they simply don't produce insulin. And that would be then an insulin dependent type two diabetic. Okay. So and you, yours is, I mean, would you say that's kind of just genetically you're predisposed because you were doing all of the right things, right? Yeah. I mean, there's still things that I look at where I was like, man, you know what? I, I have a sweet tooth or I love breakfast cereal and I love sandwiches. Like I love those things and I will eat breakfast cereal. If I like, I walk in, I don't know what I'm going to eat. I'm like, I'll have some cereal. That's a lot of carbs. Right. So it was, I, I will not uh, try to cover that up. Like I was, I had a carb dominant lifestyle. And so but what we don't know is in the research, we actually don't see a clear correlation between increased carbohydrate consumption and type 2 diabetes. Hmm. We see a lot of fat consumption being associated with diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Sure. Um, but there are correlations between both. And it's strange when you look at it, where you would go, ah, oh, it's a, it's a carb met metabolism of carb diseases. And what it seems to be is that it's still an inflammatory disease. And those inflammatory byproducts are mostly byproducts from fatty acids. And so when you get these reactive oxygen species and the advanced glycolated end products, and yeah, there are some, um, uh, the advanced glycolated end products are carbohydrates. So that's the glycogen, like the glycolated end products, but the reactant, uh, reactive oxygen species, the free fatty acids that are going around uh, increases the like protein kinase, the uh, inflammatory mediators that takes place. And then you get the dilation of your, um, your blood vessels they dilate because that's what inflammation does. But when they dilate, guess what gets to go into those cells? Those low density uh, cholesterols, those low density lipoproteins. And that's why the LDLs are considered to be so dangerous because they're small and they can go in between the endothelial cells of your blood and then your body sees those and then you start getting the interleukin six and one and all of these kind of inflammatory cytokines that are seeing the LDLs and they start attacking the LDLs and they create foam cells and then it starts to scar and then you get plaques. And so diabetes as a disease isn't the issue. Diabetes leads to many other issues. That's the problem. If you just have glucose in your system, that's not what the problem is. The problem is when you have a lot of glucose into your system, it starts damaging your micro and macro, macro vascular. And that's why they'll send you to look in your eyes because in your eyes are all these tiny, tiny, tiny little blood vessels that they can see very clearly when they look into your eyes to see if your micro blood vessels are starting to be damaged. That's why the inflammation that takes place causes blurry vision. So it is, it's the eyes or the windows to your diabetes in a sense. And that's why you need to get your eyes checked regularly if you have diabetes. That, that's why I say like, you know, people, you know, I tell us people all the time that, you know, it, diabetes isn't something that isn't necessarily that bad, but it's a slow, painful progression of all these insidious that are going to yeah. happen. Like, like you're slowly like, so just, checking off little areas of your body that are going to go to shit, you know, like the, the amputation and the eyesight and all the, all of that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah. it, it, what can people, you know, you got a whole course on this, which I'm sure you're covering all of it, but you know, what can people do to kind of, you know, help alleviate that? I mean, obviously there's the genetic factors that, you know, people can have this type two diabetes, but uh, anybody listening, like, what do you feel like, I mean, 
get up and move more. Like I know that people probably know that, but uh, what are those tangible things that you feel like people you know, really should be doing? I think that's a big part of it. I, I look at my sedentary behaviors leading up to all of it, where I was, I was in my doctoral program, you know, that was, that was three years where I felt like maybe I'd get up and exercise, but I, I said, was sitting down a lot and I was eating a lot of good carbs to feed my brain. And uh, so those, those carbs and, you know, whatever other factors were there. But uh, I think even though I exercised, um, I, I didn't do a lot of intense exercising. I didn't move as much as I should have. Uh, there were dietary things that probably all come. And then I had two great grandparents that were diabetic one of them I didn't know this until I found out I had diabetes and talking to family members that she was, uh, she was an amputee. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know these stories about my, my history. And, and so I think understanding your family history lets you know these genetic factors that take place and these kind of epigenetic factors with like around genetics. There are a lot of other factors that take place and those are lifestyle and I, uh, you know, a, a big part of that is regularly moving. And, and, and I, you know, I was training a lot at the time. So it's not like I was sitting down all day. I, I may not have been exercising, but I was moving. I was up, I was walking around, I was handing weights to people, I was showing people what, so it wasn't like I was sedentary necessarily, but when I wasn't working, I was sitting. What are th some of the things that people can do is, uh, honestly, be aware of what you're taking into your body. So it's not just about, you know, uh, carbonated sugary drinks. It is about the fat that you're taking in to your system as well. So being aware of that. And I think there were things that I would throw caution to the wind because I'm like, ah, I'll just exercise that off. And I think we have to be careful for the fit folks out there mm -hmm. who just plan on exercising some of that saturated fat off or exercising some of the, the Snickers bar off or whatever it is, like being aware that, that there are better options. I remember my dad said one time, he was like, can you imagine how good grapes used to taste before they made Snickers bars? <laughs> like there, there's some natural candies that are out there called right. fruit right. that actually don't affect your glycemic index that much. Like your fruits don't necessarily turn to glycogen that well because it's a different type of sugar. Yeah. So it doesn't affect your blood sugar in the same way. So those kind of things like eat your fruits and eat your vegetables and minimize the garbage. There's a correlation between processed meat. There's a correlation between red meat, but particularly processed meat, a lot of processed meat, highly correlated with type two diabetes. And that there's a correlation between um, the temperature at which you cook your meat, yeah. regardless of the flesh that it came from. So it could even be chicken or turkey, but grilling out and burning. So it's burning. Like the smoking is bad for you. Smoke, smoked food is not good for you. Smoke is not good for you. So you can not smoke. You don't have to smoke a cigarette. You can eat smoked food and all of those same carcinogens are going into your body. And you, you, with those carcinogens, you just need to be aware of. You have to be aware of what you're putting into your body. When, you know, I, I like, my wife makes these um, uh, broccoli, she'll put broccoli and then she'll roast it, but she'll put the olive oil and some salt on it. And I'm like, man, these are so good. And I really like the burned ones. Like I like the ones that have a little crunch to it, right? And then I started studying this stuff and I'm like, no, I can't have the birds. I have to eat the ones I like less. And here we are, like people are like, man, I have to eat foods I don't like. I have to eat foods that I don't like. Um, I don't think that's it. I think you just have to be aware of the balance and the force, right? So I might still have a, a, a carb day, but that correlates with my exercise. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm gonna exercise so I might have additional carbs and I'm like, finally, I get to have this because I know I'm going to go out for a run, right. but eating late at night and then sleeping on it, like highly carbed foods, your, your body. And I have to be aware of that now because we tend, especially for some reason during the pandemic, we seem to eat much later at night. Yeah. And when I go to bed, 
I sit with those carbohydrates in my bloodstream. I wake up, I'll have a sweet taste in my mouth. I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and for people whose system works well, it's not an issue right. until it is an issue. So it's just things to be aware of that, you know, calories are calories, eat them when you want. And I, I also think early on in my training, I got that, that teaching, like a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So just eat whatever, as long as you burn it off, you're not going to gain weight. And I, I think that was part of a feeder system to me eating whatever I wanted. Cause I knew I could just burn it off, but my, my pancreas didn't know that was true. Right. My pancreas wasn't like, oh, a calorie is a calorie. Oh, I'll just let this pass. So, so. what what about um, if you is there anything with, uh, you know, lifting and carbohydrate intake and structuring that food around a lift day versus like an off day or a like a light cardio day, something like that? I mean, where that. it's going to be, I mean, you're, 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 the uptake of that is probably going to be much better, correct? But I mean, you're the one that's going to, that's, really pro the pro on this now so what does the research say with that you, you are I mean, it's such a great question because people will feel like oh i have to burn more calories in order to get this glucose out of my system and that's not necessarily true like you your muscle activation so you remember earlier on i said there was something called insulin mediated glucose uptake but there's also non-insulin mediated glucose uptake which means you don't have to have insulin, which is great because I don't have a lot of it. So how do I uptake the glucose and get it out of my bloodstream? It's done through exercise. And the contraction of your muscles increases those glut for transports being able to pull in the, the glucose from outside the system and store it in the muscles. And resistance training is really important for that. So moving, your muscles moving is really, really important for that. So going for a run, valuable. Going for a walk, being active, it is the movement that's important. Now, the higher intensity muscle contraction will also increase the amount of glucose that will be pulled into the muscle. Right. So you can do heavy lifting days and it may not burn a lot of calories, but it will certainly um, lower your, your blood glucose levels and people respond differently. So I think the best thing you can do if you're diabetic or if you're a trainer and you're working with people that, are, that have diabetes and you are most likely you are, you have, or you will, right. um, just, you also need to, to figure out what that tracking looks like. Right. So for me, when I go for a run, my blood sugar, does great. I respond really well to running and it's probably because I suck at running. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me. And so it's a bit more challenging, hey, but my body, efficient, so it's got to work harder. Right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and I'm getting more and more efficient at running. And so I'm adding more, more lifting into the workouts. And then I, I take my carb day, my, my carb days, I take more carbohydrates in when I know I'm going to be lifting. Right. And, and I think that that's, something or exercising in general, like people can kind of balance that out with that. And also what I was saying before is when you're working with people that have diabetes, being aware that you, they want to test their blood sugars pre and post workout, and you want to see the effect. And we know that lifestyle changes for diabetics seem to be more effective than medication. Uh, unless you're taking insulin, insulin, it's, it's rapid and very effective. Uh, but in general, the lifestyle changes affect people so tremendously. And I think the problem is, is the gut punch when you read, oh, well, the um, health and human uh, source, uh, resources and the CDC and the ACSM and uh, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, they all are on the same page, 150 minutes of, of moderate um, uh, exercise a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise and two days of resistance training. And people start looking at that and they're like, that's a lot of minutes. And I'm currently doing no minutes. Right. So if you're, if you're going from no minutes and being told that you have to do 30 minutes every day, the problem is fitness professionals look at that and they go, what, 
what? It's just 30 minutes. Yeah. It's only this. And you're not meeting anybody where they're at when you say stuff like that. So now you also don't get them. Now you're another roadblock where they're like, oh, now I feel guilty because it's just this. And now I have more blame and now I have this, but it's difficult for me. And uh, I always, <laughs> I always tell people, um, do what you can, not what you can't. And there are a lot of people who get these spikes in motivation. You can't depend on motivation to change your behavior. Right. You get a spike in motivation and you go and you work out and that spike's not going to come again. In fact, you're going to be so sore afterwards that the next time you have a spike in motivation, you're going to talk yourself out of it because of how much the last spike in motivation sucked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the thing. Like when I, when I first started training people and you, know, like you want to show, I think often it's a lack of knowledge from the trainer that you want to show the client that they are out of shape. So you try to beat the crap out of yeah. them, like, and you try to make them throw up and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, because you just didn't have, you didn't have the knowledge to explain the why around what you're doing for somebody and give, giving them what they need and, you know, in, uh, not what they want and going through that. And then they're getting beat up. And I remember having a 300 plus pound client coming in and I made him do, I don't know, it was like 20 or 30 squats. Well, the volume on that, on a 300 pound man, mm. it's not completely 300 pounds that he's squatting, right? But he used to like 6,000 pounds and then he couldn't walk the next day and he didn't yeah. come in for months. And he's like, well, I just, I just wrecked. Oh, no. in, you know, because that's where my head was at. And now it's completely different. Like, when I was training in person, I'll tell people like, look, I'm going to just do a specific things. We're going to go through, you know, progressions and squats and everything. You may get nauseous because your body's not used to this, but I'm not yeah. trying to make you throw up, which is a big difference. So like, yeah, I think people, when, when they see me for, you know, example, and they're like, well, I don't want to look like you or whatever. I'm like, well, for me, I like, I had to resistance train consistently for years and I played hockey through college. I did all this sort of stuff to look yeah. like this, but I think we get lost in just living better, healthier, longer. And like, literally just like, as you said, that movement and that 30 minutes a day, like I tell this to people all the time, and it's like their mind's blown. You eat, let's say you eat three times a day, whether it's one or six, we're not going to get into that. It doesn't really matter that much, but yeah take a walk for 10 minutes after you eat yes the day holy shit like your your bioavailability of your food your nutrient absorption your 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 insulin uh, will go down all the sorts of you walk three times a day that's your 30 minutes like well i can do that but when what you right. say 30 minutes a day well i don't have 30 <clears throat> minutes at once do you have 10 minutes three times i think that's valuable I mean, pointing that out is so valuable because it's not the 150 minutes throughout the week is an accumulation of 150 right. minutes. Now, I wouldn't be like, hey, I just ran across the street. It took like eight seconds so I could get the bus. I'm like eight seconds right into my log. Like I, I wouldn't add up all of those little bits, but, but a planned, focused, and these post-perennial walks are also shown to be highly valuable for people. Like after you do your, eat your food, going for a walk has shown to be really, really beneficial. So, I mean, you're right. These, these well, can you, can you walk for 10 minutes and these accumulation of points? Uh, I, I think it's valuable. Actually, Fabio Camana, uh, who's a, a professor, he works with NASM and he's a professor at um, San Diego State exercise physiologist love listening to him talk so smart but he's he's got a like a gamification of your lifestyle right so sitting down is negative however many points standing is one positive point exercise or, or movement is two points and exercise is three points and so you just want to balance out your and he gamifies it so people can be like oh let me see at the end of the day kind of the way weight watchers does with their numbers what am I doing at the end of the day? And am I in a positive? And I, I think you just need, um, you just need a positive ratio where you are either standing or moving <laughs> or something. It just not more than you're sitting. I expect that most people will sit the majority of their day because we know you're then going to go to sleep. Um, 
correlations between type two diabetes and sleep. There's correlations between snoring and sleep apnea and daytime napping. And the reason the daytime napping is because there might be issues with your nighttime sleeping uh, that make you tired and uh, Alzheimer's and, and being considered by many researchers at this point to be type three diabetes, because the correlation between Alzheimer's and diabetes are so similar. They're so similar. And it's scary to me, Joey, because, because Alzheimer's is like my biggest pathological fear, like the pathology of having that because of seeing my grandmother. Right. And the years and years that she led to the point where, you know, she couldn't recognize people and then to the point where she couldn't talk. And there, there were a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of guilt that I had with that too, where I'm like, grandmother, you just told me that story. And then she would tell it again. And I'm like, grandmother, right? Like, I, I didn't know I was a teenager. I didn't know how to act and respond to that. Um, and I don't want, to put that on other people, right? So there's a there's a lot of stuff in you know being aware of your diet, what you eat, and your movement. And I think that that's really important. It's just that you're doing more movement throughout the day. Exercise is important. How you exercise, resistance training is important. Intensity of your resistance training can be beneficial. But if you can't do intense and intense bothers you, then move and you have to move. And I've basically taken a 15 hour course and put it down into like a 30 second sound bite, which is you can work harder and it's better. You can work more and it's better. You can move and it's better. And then be aware of the amount of uh, processed foods highly sugar, highly saturated fat foods that you bring into your body and limit those things. And all of that, uh, I discussed just more in depth over a course of about 15 hours. Beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to wrap, wrap this up. All right. All right. We've right. been at it for a while. So <laughs> Dr. Rick Ritchie, where can people find you? Uh, so on social, I'm mostly available on Instagram. So if you have questions, you want to reach out, it's at dr.rickrichie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, or you can email me at, uh, it's rick at HMS resources. It stands for human movement resources. So rick at hmsresources.com. And then your uh, diabetes course will be available. That'll be available in, um, around May, 2021. So in May, um, 21, you can look for that and that'll be, you can email me or DM me for information. If you want to be on a mailing list that goes out to let people know, then just shoot me a, a DM or an email. And then you could go to the medfitclassroom.org and you can see when it's available then. Beautiful. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time and remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. I'm Joy Thurman, and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Um.